This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venigal, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest today is Michael Katz, C.V. Star Professor Emeritus of Russian and East European Studies at Middlebury College in Vermont. He has published the Kratza Sonata Variations for Yale University Press and has edited Tolstoy's short fiction for W.W. Norton and Company. In addition, he has recently published a translation of Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment for Live Right. Today we will discuss the late novella by Leo Tolstoy called The Kreutzer Sonata, a story of murder, jealousy, sex, love, guilt, and suffering, a novella that's as relevant today in its own fiery way as it was back in 1889. So it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Katz. How do you do? I'm doing well. So my first question for you is, how long did Tolstoy take on writing this novella? novella? Um, I'm not exactly sure. He wrote it at, at white heat. Uh, and one would have to consult his notebooks and diaries to know exactly how long he spent on it. I think it was a couple of months, uh, and <clears throat> it was translated into English very soon after it was published in Russian. The uh, censor objected to the novel, it's really not a novel, it's a tale, a long, short story. The censor objected to it, and it was rejected, I think, seven times. And his wife recopied it each time after the author made changes in it to satisfy the censor. And when it was rejected the seventh time, uh, Sofia Andreevna Tolstaya made a direct appeal to the czar. She made an appointment and went to see Alexander uh, III and convinced him to allow the publication of the novella. The czar made a catastrophic error by allowing it to be published. He said that it would be published as part of Tolstoy's collected works in an expensive edition and that very few people would buy it but the result was that it went viral very quickly and was a bestseller in spite of the price and was a scandalous event in Russian history. And as I said, it was translated very quickly and began selling in the United States, uh, also censored here by the post office, Uh, The publisher was taken to court, and the judge found that there was nothing obscene in the book and allowed it to be sold. Nice. So, what is the Kreitz Sonata about? I mean, what's the main storyline? Can you please explain for my listeners? Sure. The main storyline is a man is a passenger on a train in a compartment with other people and they begin discussing various issues, in particular the so-called woman question in 19th century Russian culture, and that is what rights a woman should have, whether she should be under her husband's domination, 
what about divorce? Was divorce legal? Could they? Could a woman divorce a man? Under what circumstances could a man divorce a woman? Whether uh, chastity was a good thing before marriage, uh, and whether it was restricted just to the woman, whether the man had an obligation to be chaste as well. So, our hero, whose name is Poznyshev, is a passenger on a train, and is hearing a discussion of all these uh, uh, um, of all these items. And at the end of the discussion, uh, the other passengers leave the train, and he's left alone with one person to whom he recites his life history. That is, how he courted women, how he married one younger woman, how he became very jealous of her affections for a musician who enters their life, an old friend of his, and how he goes out of town for a few days on a business trip, returns unexpectedly late at night, Uh, creeps into the house and expects to find his wife and the musician making love. Instead, they are making music and having a little supper after they've made music together. But his jealousy overpowers him. He takes a dagger and he chases the two of them around the room. The musician runs away in his stocking feet and the hero, Poznyshev, stabs his wife with a dagger, assuming she's guilty of adultery. She isn't, and uh, she dies a few days afterwards, and he then spends the rest of his life confessing his crime to anyone who will hear his story. Wow. I mean, it's almost like a Russian version of Othello, but more ascetic and more anti-sex and really an angrier piece of writing than Othello. I think that, I think that is one of the, the influences on, on the novella. Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare plays a large role in Russian culture. Tolstoy himself didn't much care for Shakespeare, wrote a letter to Chekhov uh, in which he said, uh, Shakespeare's plays are bad enough, but yours, Chekhov, are even worse than his. So he didn't like much. He didn't like Chekhov much, and didn't like Shakespeare much. This is after his conversion to uh, his own version of Russian Orthodoxy. Christianity, because he didn't like the Russian Orthodox Church as much. He was excommunicated from it, as far as I know. Indeed, he developed his own ideas, edited the scriptures on his own, reduced the Gospels, took out all of the what he thought was the nonsense in the Gospels, all the miracles, and left Jesus' teachings, which he thought was the essence of the book. Fascinating. And 
when I read it, I decided to reread reread it again in preparation for this episode, and I would have to say that I strongly disagree with its anti-sex message. But at the same time, what he says it's so infectious, and that was what Tolstoy wanted art to be infectious. And parts of his views I can't help but agreeing with in some way. Would you say that's your view as well? Uh, agreeing with Posnichev's views? Yeah, at least Is parts it? of them. Yeah, well, I think that the the way that society forced women into these roles was very accurate, uh, and the way that society made women uh, put women on display for men to choose and then use uh, and misuse in their way is. Uh, the the message that Tolstoy is trying to uh, advance, and late in his life, a little bit after, Curtis Sonata uh, is an important document for the history of Tolstoy's own thought as it's evolving. And by the end of his life, Tolstoy was an advocate of chastity not only before marriage, but in marriage. And when it was pointed out to Tolstoy that if married couples remained chaste, they wouldn't have any children, he, and that the species, the human species, had a chance of dying out, he said, if it dies out, let, let it be, because the human species will have fulfilled its divine mission. And Pazhnyshev himself says as much. He comes very close to that. And then in the afterword to Kreutzer Sonata, which uh, Tolstoy wrote in response to readers' reviews, he states explicitly that chastity is the goal of mankind. Fascinating indeed, because some of... Posnichev's views, I feel, could at least apply in some way or another to the modern world where, even though we are in the age of the sexual revolution and its aftermath, there is still an element of the Madonna whore dialectic that informs some of the society that Posnichev and Tolstoy, by extension, are critiquing. Because on the one hand, women are required think, to be chaste. I think you're right, and I think the recent Me Too movement uh, illustrates that the problem is still with us. Yeah. I was almost about to bring that up, actually, because how would, because on the one hand, you see women are expected to be chaste. On the other hand, they're expected to be sexually free and expressive. And, and this might be done through innuendo, subtlety, or in our age, extreme nudity in media and art. It depends. But in any way, the double sexual standard still exists. And Posnichev is pointing this out, and his solution is that everybody should be chaste, and I don't know if we're going to adopt this ourselves, but I can see where he's coming from. Yes. Yes. No, I don't think there's much chance of that being adopted as a social policy. Yeah. Because... In fact, in with the sexual liberation, these things seem to be going in the opposite direction. Yeah. With a, a culture of hookups. Yeah. And regarding War and Peace, which is a novel I've been reading, I want to bring that up because I see parts of 
it that seemed to foreshadow parts of Kratos' Sonata, because when Pierre Bezukhov hates his wife, Helen Bezukhov, I can almost feel Polzinshev's hatred for his wife in that, and the way Anatoly Kurigan is portrayed as a bad seducer, I can also see some of that in the portrait of Chukachevsky, at least in Pozenshev's diseased yes, view. I think you're absolutely right. I think that Tolstoy is, in a, in a way, doing a rough draft of what was to become his character of Pozenshev in uh, Kreutzer's Sonata. Uh, and Hélène is uh, a glamorous femme fatale, and Pierre is forced into the marriage with her in war and peace. The the father engineers it, makes it so that everyone expects the marriage and then announces it before Pierre manages to propose. In fact, when Pierre actually says to Hélène that he loves her, he can only mutter the phrase in formal French with the vous form. Uh, he can't say it in Russian, and he can't use the informal form. Yeah, like je vous aime. How, je vous aime, how stilted and how conventional the marriage is going to be. Yeah. And on the one hand, regarding Pozhnyshev, I've sometimes heard of him described as a misogynist, and... Do you think he's that, or is he something stranger? Because my inclination is that he's something much stranger than either misogynist or a woman lover. On the one hand, he's actually critiquing patriarchy as we see it in Russia, and perhaps in some ways even outside of Russia. And if he were not a man and if he were not anti-sex, I would think he might pass for a radical feminist in some respects. What do you think? Uh, I didn't. I didn't catch the last part of what you said. Repeat the end of the question. I said that in some ways he might. Feminist. Yeah, I said he might pass for a radical feminist in some of his views. With the, with some uh, refinement. Why do you think that? I don't know because a lot uh, of feminists critique. Because a lot of feminists critique the idea of sexual objectification and other things, which Posnichev himself was also critiquing, albeit from a different perspective. I see. I see, right. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And that's really Tolstoy's view coming through Pozhnyshev's uh, statement. Uh, yes, I think you're right. I think he, he doesn't hate women. He's attracted to his wife at first uh, and is a very sexually active man who's making demands on his wife that she can't fulfill. The wife is interested in something other than sex and looks to Trukhachevsky for companionship and for spiritual bond, which they share through the music. If anything, Tolstoy was uh, antipathetic towards the music because it allowed the emotions to run free and uh, he was afraid of these freewheeling feelings that would take control of him and uh, he would lose his own will and yield to the emotional impact of the music yeah if I can find some time to read what I'm 
what he's saying here is basically, let's see. Here's what Poznashev is saying. I'm reading from a different translation than yours, from Piviar and Volokonsky's translation of it for vintage. Or mm-hmm. It, music, at once transports me directly into the inner state of the one who wrote the music. I merge with him in my soul, and together with him am transported from one state into another. But why do I, why I do that, I don't know. The man who wrote, let's say, the Crates of Sonata, Beethoven, knew why he was in such a state. That state led him to certain actions, and therefore that state had meaning for him, while for me it has none, and therefore music only provokes, it doesn't conclude. Well, they play a military march, soldiers march to it, the music achieves its end. They play a dance tune, I dance, the music achieves its end. They sing a mass, I take communion, the music also achieves its end. While here, there's only provocation, but what's to follow from that provocation isn't there. And that's why music sometimes has a fearful, such a terrible effect. In China, music is a state affair, and that's how it should be. As if it can be allowed that anyone who likes should hypnotize, hypnotize, hypnotize another or many others and then do what he likes with them. And above all, that this hypnotist should be the first immoral man who comes along. Otherwise, it's a terrible means in the hands of anyone who comes along. Take, for instance, this Crates of Sonata, the first presto. How can that presto be played in a drawing room among ladies in decollete? It's played, they applaud a little, and then eat ice cream and talk about the latest scandal. These things can be played only in certain important, significant circumstances. And when there's a demand to accomplish certain important actions in accordance with that music, Play it and do what the music attunes you to. Otherwise, the calling up of an energy, a feeling, that accords neither with the place nor with the time, that is not manifest in anything, can only have a pernicious effect. On me, at least, this thing had a terrible effect. It seemed to me as if completely new feelings, new possibilities, which I hadn't known until then, were revealed to me. It was as if something was saying to my soul, So it's like that. Not at all as I thought and lived before, but like that. What this new thing was that I had learned, I couldn't explain to myself, but the consciousness of this new state was jo- was very joyful. All those same persons, including my wife and him, appeared in quite a new light. Well read. Thank you. Forgive yeah. my lapses. And Tolstoy... Sorry? Forgive my lapses. I made a few mistakes here and there, but forgive them. That's quite all right. Um, Tolstoy himself was a musician. He played the piano, but uh, later in his life went off music for the reasons that Bosnishev cites in that passage, that is, surrendering one's will to something which is greater and threatens to take away his freedom. Yeah. And at the same time, Poznashev is arguing that music does have a kind of instrumental purpose if it is purposeful and useful, but music by itself as an art form is transgressive and it can be dangerous. Well, if it's a military march or a dance tune, then then the music is acceptable. But if it's classical music that just transports 
the the hearer, the listener, then it's not then it's not allowed. Yeah, and I can almost see the arguments that Posenchev is making against classical music applied by some people to things like rap music and pop music and other music that inspires the feelings in a very wild way. Do you notice that sometimes? Uh, I haven't heard those arguments against rap music and pop music. Or at least rock and roll music in a, the early not a days. Fan of popular culture, so I can't comment on that. Okay. And then I want to come back to how Tolstoy treats sex because in many cases, at least in the society, it's kind of treated as a good thing provided it's regulated by custom and the man can roam around, the woman can't roam around, but she's expected to please the man. And I notice in parts mm -hmm. of the story where Poznishev mentions that when a woman was told about the affairs of the husband or what the husband wants her wants her to do for him, she's horrified by it. And perhaps that might be due to the sexual repression of the society around her. Perhaps it could be due to the animalism of the whole thing, as Poznishev himself will say. Well, I think I think Poznishev is a sexual being, and the passage in which uh, he first describes Trukhachevsky is a very interesting passage where Trukhachevsky is described as having moist almond-shaped eyes, uh, impeccably dressed in his Western clothes, having the rear end uh, like a hottentot. Oh yeah, I see that. Especially developed racist. behind. Exactly. Exactly. I think that I just taught a class on this last week. I think that there's an indication that the wife is not the only one who finds Trukhachevsky attractive. I think Poznishev also finds Trukhachevsky attractive. And that there's a homoerotic uh, undertone to the relationship. And that that also inspires the jealousy that he feels when his wife and Tukhachevsky are forming this spiritual and emotional bond. Yeah. And at the same time, he argues that while love is animalistic, it's also even worse than animals, animalism as the way we practice it, because he views that animals have sex and copulate at least in certain seasons, whereas we just copulate for the sake of it. And I like and For I like recreational purposes. Yeah. And here's here's this passage where he calls love swinish in chapter thirteen. What is filthy above all, he began, is that it's supposed in theory that love is something ideal, lofty, but in practice love is something loathsome, swinish, which it is even loathsome and shameful to speak of or remember. There must be some reason why nature made it loathsome and shameful. But if it's loathsome and shameful, that's how it should be understood. But here, on the contrary, people pretend that the loathsome and shameful is beautiful and lofty. What were the first signs of my love? That I gave myself to animal excesses not only without being ashamed of them, but for some reason taking pride in the possibility of these physical excesses, and that without giving the least thought not only to her spiritual life but even to her physical life. I wondered where our anger against each other came from, yet the thing was perfectly clear. 
that anger was nothing other than the protest of human nature against the animal that was overwhelming it. So here, marriage problems seem to be like a protest against sexuality itself. And sometimes Poznyshev himself says that they would make up and make up with each other after a fight with love and this type of thing. And I think I've heard right. people advocate make-up sex, for example, but Poznyshev would consider that a hiding of the real hatred that's hiding within. I agree. I think that's an accurate reading. Yeah. I mean, it's, and which I think it's a. I don't know if you um, want to talk about the wife's reaction, Sophie's reaction to all of this. Yes, we'll uh, talk about that. In terms of. Excuse me? Yeah, we'll talk about it. Okay. Do you want to wait or talk about that now? I think we can talk about it now, and then I want to get on to some of the other points I wanted to talk about, like the relevance of it and why I think it's a brilliant work and why I think Tolstoy really attracts me as a writer. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about his wife's, Tolstoy's wife's reaction to it. Okay. Well, uh, as I said before, she copied the thing over and over each time the censor rejected it, and he made changes in the manuscript. She copied the whole thing. And while she was doing so, she uh, decided to, in a way, clandestinely undermine his story by writing her own counter-stories, one in particular called Whose Fault or Who is to Blame, in which a husband based on Tolstoy marries a much younger woman, and then an old friend of the husband, in this case not a musician, but an artist, enters the plot, and the wife forms a very close emotional and spiritual bond with the artist. The husband gets increasingly jealous, as he does in Kreutzer. The husband in a fit of rage at his jealous wife, hurls a marble paperweight at her head. It strikes her temple, and she collapses and dies a few days later. He is mortified uh, at the deed that he's done and begs forgiveness, but she she forgives him. Unlike the Tolstoy story, she actually forgives him and says that he is not to blame, that no one is to blame for it. And she dies, and he is distraught, filled with repentance, and tries to expiate his crime in some way, but uh, winds up uh, a miserably unhappy man. What's so curious about what's so curious about <clears throat> the wife's story is that she wrote it in a school notebook, but in the margins of the notebook, she copied out the exact words from the Kreutzer Sonata that she disagrees with, and writes those in the margin as she's rewriting the story. Fascinating. So she is, in a way, trying to undo the story that. Uh, the great writer Leo Tolstoy 
published by her own, um, let's call it proto-feminist read of what a woman needs, uh, what a woman desires and needs in an ideal spouse. I haven't read read her response to it, but how does she treat sexuality in that compared to the Tolstoy novella? It's uh, also treated as an animal passion. The husband attacks her uh, on the night of their wedding, and she's terrified by the husband's forward advances, and the husband requires only her presence as a sexual object and never forms any sort of emotional bond with her. And she is appalled by this animalistic sex. It's fascinating because if you look at science, we learn that women in some ways are more sexually capable than men, yet at the same time we see women in these roles, these stories being appalled by sex, appalled by the man's sexual passion. Why do you think that might be? Well, there's a man writing the story who really has no appreciation for a woman's sexual experience. Yeah, and this is fascinating that... I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is fascinating that Tolstoy, who writes Natasha Rostov, having normal feelings, and even Anna Karenina as a sexual woman, and then he goes on and writes the Kreutzer Sonata, which kind of ignores the sexuality of women and views them as these pure people to some degree. Well, Anna Karenin is a sexual woman, but she pays for her sexuality by being miserable and by committing suicide. Yeah, I haven't read Anna Karenina yet, but I know how she commits suicide by... By throwing herself so before the train. She's, she's, right. So she's paying for her sexual, her sexual being. Hmm. And another thing, were you saying something, sir? I'm here. Okay. So, and then I also want to bring it back to Christianity, which in the epigraph he quotes Jesus sayings against lust that whoever looks on a woman with lust has committed adultery. In some translation, it's whoever looks on another's wife. But in a lot of translations, it's whoever looks on a woman with lust has committed right. adultery. Right. And Posnichev interprets that if you lust after your wife, you're committing adultery, which is a big stretch in my opinion, but I'm fascinated as to how he gets to there. Yes, well, we don't know how we got, how we got to there, um, except that he was dealing with his own very strong sexuality, and he was lusting after women outside of his own marriage, especially peasant women on his estate. Yeah. So his his own sexuality could not be confined to his marriage to Sofia Andreevna. Uh, and in fact, towards the end of his life, she's jealous of his affection for his secretary, his male secretary. Wow. And also suspects... Sorry? Wow, that's fascinating. Bogakov. And also suspects that he 
harbors homoerotic feelings for Cherkov, his assistant and uh, a kind of editor of the of his Christian works. So Tolstoy is a highly sexual being. If you read his memoirs and his letters, he had affairs with men and with women early in his life, and Sophie was even more upset with the homosexual possibilities that she saw in P.O. Tolstoy. Fascinating. I mean, and one of the recurrent things it's that he's... a he complex s- character. Yep, it is a complex thing, and that's why I love this novella so much, even if I disagree with a lot of its views, because it's so complex. It's both a rant and then it's a really fascinating story and journey into a tormented psyche. And I really like it for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And I really love a lot of Tolstoy's late fiction. Not only this, but The Death of Ivan Ilyich, which is a beautiful story of dying, and then Father Sergius, which is one of the best Christian stories I've ever read. And then there's this two-part story, mm-hmm. The Forged Coupon, which has hell and heaven within its within its two parts, and its and its villain, Stepan Pelagyushkin. Am I pronouncing this right? Stepan Pelagyushkin? Yes. And then Stepan Pelagyushkin turns from a kind of Anton Sugar-type figure. Anton Sugar is a villain from the novel and film No Country for Old Men. He turns from an Anton Sugar figure into a Christian man, and it has one of the best escape scenes ever written in literature. And then there's this final novella, Haji Murad, which is one of my favorites. It's like a miniature version of the Iliad. And Tolstoy's late fiction has this kind of cleanliness to it, a purity of writing and form. And the Crates of Sonata, even though it deals with an infected subject matter, has this beautiful clarity to it, I would say. Do you know the story Alyosha Garshok? Or Alyosha the Pot? Yeah, I read that. I really like it. It's a nice happy little tale, and I don't call it happy again, but it's a nice, short, and bite-sized tale, so to speak. It's quite beautiful, and I really like The Prisoner of the Caucasus as well, which is a nice kid's tale, if only kids would read it more often. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, The Prisoner of the Caucasus. I think Alyosha Garshok, which was published posthumously, uh, and he was very uncertain whether it was successful, is one of the best things he wrote in his late Christian period because it's so understated and um, the meaning is implicit rather than explicit. He's not being dogmatic about it at all. Yeah, and I really like that. The peasant's life as he's serving other people and realizing uh, that death is a natural part of life. Yeah, it's a really understated, beautiful thing and... It's not so much through War and Peace that I was introduced to Tolstoy, that that's a big part of how I come to Tolstoy, but largely through his later fiction that really attracts me to him. I mean, and that's, I wonder how typical is that for people who read Tolstoy? Uh, I think it's unusual. I think most people are attracted by War and Peace. As, as I am. Anna Karenina. Sorry? I- as I am, I really love War and Peace. Every good word you can say about it is deserving. And I haven't finished the whole thing yet, but I really well, like it. Tolstoy himself, in his late period, rejects his artistic work. In his 
uh, in his confession, after his confession, he decides that nothing he wrote before confession was worth anything. And is quite happy to sign away his royalties on the books and assign them to the Tolstoyan movement. And his wife is horrified because the books were earning money and they were of use to supporting her ten children. But Tolstoy turns on aesthetic pleasure and instead takes to writing these short parables Uh, like God Sees the Truth and Waits, or Who Should Teach Whom, We the Peasant Children, or The Peasant Children Us, and then writing primers for peasant children, educational materials, editing the gospel, and various other religious, on life, or the meaning of life, etc., etc., becoming... uh, very didactic in his old age, with the exception of stories like Haji Murat and uh, Alyosha Garshok. Yeah, and maybe maybe my maybe my readings of Tolstoy might be unusual, but I still think that despite himself, he creates a kind of aesthetic pleasure, especially in the forged coupon and the death of Ivan Ilyich, because. He's doing something new compared to what he did before. He's going for something sparer, if I have to use that word. Well, I think he would say that it's a parable, that in the way Jesus told stories to teach truths, to teach his disciples truths, that he told stories making up stories in order to teach truths about life and death. And I think he does a good job at it. And that's a different kind of pleasure than the aesthetic pleasure which he's creating in War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Yeah, I am a Christian, so I could at least... Which are much less didactic. Yeah, I am a Christian, so I could could at least see some of the appeal of Tolstoy's didacticism in his later stuff, especially in The Forged Coupon and Father Sergius. In The Forged Coupon, you have this religious revival that's happening in parts one and two, and in Father Sergius, you have this beautiful study of a man who's struggling with pride and true faith. Indeed. And I would really recommend people read Tolstoy's late fiction. It was a kind of revelation for me. They, they're missing out if they don't read it, to be honest with you. I agree with you. I think they should read all of Tolstoy. Not just his late fiction. Agreed. As you you are reading War and Peace, and you said you will read Anna Karenina. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think I want to talk about the reception of this work and what relevance do you think it might have for us today. Anton Chekhov, he disagreed with the views, but he loved the book. Of course, Theodore Roosevelt thought it was perverted, and of course it was very controversial back in the day. Well, I think it is controversial. It remains controversial. Agreed. And that's one of the things that attracted me to it, 
and that attracts readers to it now, that it's talking about the rights of women and the nature of sexuality, the nature of adultery, chastity, there's masturbation, uh, there's prostitution. It, it speaks to a whole range of sexual issues. Does he deal with abortion and, and contraception? Not in that novel. In Anna Karenina, there is a scene in which uh, Anna confesses to Dolly that she doesn't want to have any more children, and Dolly says to her, how do you do that? Uh, how can you be so sure you're not going to have any more children? And then there's the discreet dot, 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 and, and then the narrative picks up again and says, Dolly could scarcely believe her ears at what she heard. And that's clearly uh, some sort of birth control that Anna is using, assuming she's not having regular abortions. She's employing some sort of birth control methods. Uh, Tolstoy was very influenced by the, the medical doctor, Alice uh, Toklas, uh, who wrote a book about women's health and who talked about birth control in the middle of the 19th century. Fascinating. Because sometimes I've read passages so where he was told... well read, and he was introducing all sorts of issues into his novel, and sexuality and women's rights were central to not not to War and Peace, but to Anna Karenina, and then to Kreutzer Sonata. Yeah. And I really think it's a kind of model for transgressive art, transgressive artwork that challenges your views and challenges societal views. It's almost as transgressive as Nabokov's Lolita, I would say. I haven't read Lolita yet, but I've heard about it. You have a lot to read. I do. <laughs> I do. I will seek to read but more. But you're young, I can tell. Yeah. Yes. So I want to thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I hope this is a use to your listeners and to you and I wish you well Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.